the U.S. international money laundering statutes are extraterritorial, which means they don't just apply to people in the U.S. You don't even have to have ever stepped foot on U.S. soil. The people that you meet, those to me are the best resources when I kind of reflect back on my almost 30 years. You learn some things by mistake. You learn some great things by watching your peers and your mentors do things. You're listening to Don Fort, the former chief of IRS criminal investigation and currently the director of investigations with the law firm Constellanitz and Fink. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. And it's something that I think of quite a bit now, just how fortunate I was to have this, this incredible job with the government. In this episode, we discuss his journey to becoming an IRS special agent, the theory to seize assets from Russian oligarchs, the importance of mentors in his career, and having a positive attitude when you don't get selected. He is the former chief of IRS criminal investigations. He has a CPA license, and currently he's the director of investigations for Constellants in Fink. Don Fort, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Robert, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for being on the podcast, Don. It's a pleasure, and you're someone I've always wanted to talk to on the podcast. I've worked for you for many years, but we really never met face-to-face. This is, this is going to be good. Yeah, really looking forward to the conversation. Why did you pursue an accounting career? Three decades ago, I went to uh, Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. That's where I went to college. And I think like many individuals that are in college kind of struggling with what you want to do in life. And at that time, I was most interested in finances and money and accounting. And that time I was like, all right, I think I'll get an accounting degree and I'll follow this traditional route of shoot for, a, I think it was a big eight accounting firm at that time. We can do some public accounting, not really knowing you know, none of my family members were in that business, but that's kind of the thought process. I was like, by process of elimination, I like finances, I like accounting. Let's see if I can make a career in that kind of thing. How did you go from getting an accounting career to go into IRS criminal investigations? That's an interesting story. And, you know, really um, thankful that it connected me with my future wife. So I started dating who's now my wife of 31 years, when I was a junior in college back in the late 80s. Her dad worked for the IRS, started as a revenue agent, and for the last 20 years of his career, he was what's called a a revenue service representative, essentially a tax attache for the IRS. And he was stationed, you know, in various countries around the world. And at that time, so the work that you and I did, Robert, when we were the last 20 years of our careers, there have been special agents overseas. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, there were no special agents that were stationed abroad, no attaches for IRSCI. So all of the work, and granted, it was a little bit more limited back then in terms of international work, but that work would be done by a civil tax attache. So in addition to kind of working on tax treaties and complicated civil issues, they would also, if a special agent in the U.S. had an issue that they needed resolved in Australia or the U.K., they would actually call the civil revenue service representative to help them, guide them in terms of, can I do an interview? Like, what are the processes here? And things like that. So long story short, my now wife was also in the accounting field. He said to her, 
you got to get this job. This is fantastic. What these special agents do, it's an accounting degree, but you're you're out there in the field investigating financial fraud. So fast forward, we wind up being connected to a recruiter in the D.C. area, take the tests and the exams. My wife found, wound up going a different route. But for me, passed everything, got out of college. And, you know, within six months or so, everything cleared and I, and I started the position. It's interesting because had I not heard about the job from, you know, my wife's father, I may never have gone down this path. And it gets to the point that this position, I think certainly 30 years ago, not many people heard of it at all. And even now, you know, the role of the IRS special agent is, is somewhat unknown. But I always love to tell that story because it's just a, a close connection to my uh, father-in-law. Interesting. I was working with my father in public accounting. I was a CPA. I didn't even know IRS even had a, had a criminal side at all. Didn't even know anything about it. How I knew about it was I was surfing the internet, the internet being, you know, AOL dial up back in the, uh, in the ancient <laughs> yeah. days. And the Secret Service had a website. I was looking at federal agent jobs. I always wanted to be one type thing. And they had links to other law enforcement, FBI, DEA. And IRS was a link on the website from Secret Service. And I was like, I didn't even know that. And sure enough, looked into it, found out that they were hiring accountants just like me. And that's that was me. I liked law enforcement yeah. and I liked accounting. And I was a reserve deputy at the time. And I just enjoyed the marriage between the accounting skills and the law enforcement skills. So very similar paths. Yeah, it's amazing how many interesting stories like that agents have. I think the, the agency does a better job of recruiting now than they used to, but still too many people don't know about the job. Well, that's true too, as well as the internet is at your fingertips on the phone. <laughs> Back in the day when you and I started, it was, like I said, still dial up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got your yeah. AOL disc in the mail. Oh, yeah, that's right. What's the most interesting case you worked as an agent? I started in the summer of 91, and I was actually in uh, the Baltimore field office. So there wasn't a Washington, D.C. field office, believe it or not. Baltimore was the headquarters. Washington, uh, D.C. was a post of duty, like a sub-office of that office. And at the time, there was some big controversy with the U.S. Attorney's Office that the special agent in charge at the time had pulled all the agents physically out of Washington, D.C., and this is kind of a long lead up to the point that I'm getting to. In 1992, after I had been on the job a year or so ago, you know, they reestablished relationships and reopened the offices in D.C. And I was one of a handful of people that raised my hand to move from essentially the suburbs of Washington, D.C. and Landover, Maryland, to go down to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Really one of the best decisions I ever made because there were so many amazing cases in Washington, D.C. And as a brand new agent, you know, there's about 10 to 15 special agents covering Washington, D.C. To put that in perspective, there's maybe a thousand FBI agents in Washington, D.C. Essentially, the pick the litter in the types of cases to work. And very early on, I had an opportunity to work on what's called an independent counsel case, which they don't really do anymore, but it was essentially a high-profile investigation that they wanted an independent attorney to come in and investigate. 
And I had the opportunity to work on two of those, probably the only agent that ever worked on two of those, probably the kind of two most interesting. I worked on the independent counsel investigation of Mike Espy, who was the former secretary of agriculture in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And they brought in a, so they brought in an independent counsel. I was the only IRS agent working on this case, again, primarily because I think I was probably young and naive and it sounded cool. All the older <laughs> All the grizzled old veterans said, no way, I'm not touching that. So I go in and they wanted to establish, just to, real briefly, they had alleged that Mike Espy had received all these gratuities and his role as Secretary of Agriculture. And my role as the follow the money guy was to come in and see, were there any tax consequences to that? And interestingly, after a year or so, I did my analysis and followed the money to the penny, literally, and determined that there really was no tax consequence at all. There did not appear to be a case to be made against Mike Espy. That was essentially it, my role on that case. The Interestingly, the independent counsel and the staff disagreed and brought charges against Mike Espy actually indicted him. Mm -hmm. You can Google this. Your listeners are interested. It's it's something that stuck with me my whole career. They indicted him for those charges, and he was eventually acquitted of of all of those charges. But that was an interesting case on the work that you do as a financial investigator and following the money and uncovering the leads, looking at evidence making a recommendation and kind of seeing how it plays out in the court system. So that was one. And I also worked on the Whitewater Independent Council. There was a D.C. part of the Whitewater investigation, which was under the Clinton administration. This was fascinating because it was uh, it was an allegation that individuals in the White House were looking through, surreptitiously looking through background security clearance files for administration officials of the opposing party. Right. I remember so that. So I worked. So it was interesting. So the FBI was recused, but I spent about four months in the White House basement with a couple of attorneys looking through these files, literally counting staple holes, trying to determine if files had been copied. Fascinating experience to be the lead IRS agent on that. The lead attorney that I worked with was Rod Rosenstein, who went on to become the deputy attorney general. But just again, point being, I raised my hand for opportunities that nobody else did. And just fascinating the the scope of the work and the people that I met and kept in touch with my the rest of my career was just a great experience for me. It was like a gold mine out there, really. Yeah, yeah. So many great cases. Later on, you become all the way up to chief of criminal investigations and you leave. And now you're with uh, Constant and Fink. What do you do now with them? So I'm the director of investigations and it's a relatively small firm that specializes in tax controversy offices in, in New York City and D.C., But the firm as a whole does a lot of high stakes tax controversy, civil, criminal, white collar work, internal investigations. I have a lot of flexibility. So I work on a lot of, if an attorney is defending a criminal matter, you know, I'll get involved to provide some insight and advice on how I see the investigation or maybe where I see the investigation heading. So a fair amount of my work is in that the civil and criminal defense work. But I also do a lot of been involved in internal investigations. I still do a lot of speaking and writing and also consulting with technology firms that are really of interest to me based on the work that I did when I was with IRSCI. Data analytics, cryptocurrency, and things like that. So again, fortunate to work with a firm that being relatively small has kind of a family feel. So I 
flexible to be able to do a lot of different things. So regarding the technology, are you coming in and just advising them of what the government's looking for regarding from a compliance or anti-money laundering aspect? How's that working? More on the um, the tax side. When I was with CI and we stood up the Nationally Coordinated Investigations Unit, you know, using data analytics and technology to try to find criminal tax non-compliance. Right. That was something that was just really, and still is a passion of mine. And there are firms out there that specialize in this kind of work, which is really what the government needs, right? Resources are limited, money's limited. There's super smart people and firms out there that specialize in kind of helping to identify, really kind of hone in on case selection, right? Instead mm-hmm. of picking cases out of the dark, using technology to try to find out where the potential leads are. I had a chance right before the end of my career was to go to the cybercrime unit for a couple of months and be assigned there. And that was very interesting about uh, the work that they were doing. It was, it was kind of fun. Yeah. A lot of great work. So in the meantime, you've, you've been a chief with CI, you've seen the 30,000 foot view, you've got your hands dirty and I'm pretty sure you've, were had your hands on the pulse of a lot of different things that were of interest to CI in general that would make national news. The invasion of Ukraine, there was an interest in the Russian oligarchs. And what surprised me, and one reason why I want to have you on the podcast, is the speed at which the governments move, whether it's the United States or other governments moved, in finding these assets and seizing these assets – uh, one question I have is, how does the U.S. government move that fast, number one? I would assume they're already on the radar screen. And then number two is, under what authority can these things be seized? I'm not saying the Russian oligarchs are, are, are innocent by no means, mm-hmm. but I'm just kind of curious. It seemed to move pretty fast. And they move pretty fast with um, at least what, they, what, what I perceived as there was no question we're going to do it, and it's lawful to do so. Yeah, it's an interesting and the involvement of when you think about it, this approach of the U.S. government and really the allies around the world to the sanctions. And it comes down to the the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia. And this is not to make it political, just pointing, you know, just kind of painting the picture. Sure. You want to kind of starve the take the assets away in hopes that those sanctions you know, in a broader way, lead to some relief in that war. It's logical. It's about money and assets, right? So who's going to be involved in that? Your financial investigators. So while some that don't have a lot of knowledge of, you know, what an agency like IRS CI does, would say, like, what the heck is the IRS doing involved in this? Those of us that, that have done this and Knowledge of Mullins area know that these are the, uh, the finest investigators in the world, so that's it's required. So it's logical that they're a part of that. And so what you're seeing is following the money and kind of note that FBI's had a klepto capture task force since 2010. So a lot of these, like you said, are on the radar. So when you bring together the best of the best from all the agencies, you bring together all the agencies and the prosecutors more than likely you've got some great leads from day one. So what seems, you know, on the outside now to be happening really quickly, Mm -hmm. the agencies probably had some leads, right? The FBI was probably looking at a number of individuals and had already gathered a bunch of intel and evidence 
IRS, no doubt, had some that were on the radar screen that they were looking at from a financial crime perspective. And you put it together. Again, you put the best financial investigators, you put agencies that have a footprint that's massive in the U.S. and around the world, and the prosecutors and the you know connections that they have, they have to their fellow prosecutors around the world. You've got some things that were, no doubt, in my mind, already in the hopper. Right. And if you look at some of the stuff, I haven't spent a lot of time reading it, but the theory is basically the the ones that are being seized in the U.S. is civil asset forfeiture. That's how they move so quickly. You don't see when they seize a yacht or a plane or something like that. It's not a criminal indictment. You know, the ones that I'm aware of, they're seizing these under the theory of an international money laundering and a civil asset forfeiture. So essentially, the money at any point moves through the United States banking system. Right. Which... Most financial transactions clear through New York City, so you've got a connection there. But the threshold for civil asset forfeiture is pretty low, and that's how they're really able to move pretty quickly. So I think it's two things. It's that it's the asset forfeiture tool that's so powerful to U.S. law enforcement. And then it's the high likelihood that there were already a number of investigations going on by each of the agencies and, and probably around the world. And those relationships now are closer than ever, you know, between the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the U.S. domestic authorities and folks around the world. That's kind of what my guess was. Like they had this stuff already, already in the, in a file when this stuff happened. Yeah. You bring it together a task force like that. Yeah. The first thing you do is what do we have? What's the low hanging fruit? Everybody look at your current inventory. Bring it to the table. Just speaking from experience, that's how you start. And then you start building out the web, financial web from there. I've always wondered who's going to pay for the upkeep because <laughs> that yacht sitting yeah. in that port is not, it's not cheap. Somebody's going to keep, somebody yeah, keep electricity running and the, uh, you know, the shining right. up the poles and whatever else are shining up. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's interesting in this this scenario, I don't know if this legislation is passed, but what makes this unique is what they want to do is when they sell and auction off these assets is get that money back to the Ukrainian people. And again, I'm not sure if that's passed, but that's kind of an interesting, interesting concept. So the stat, there's, there's going to be a, in Congress a statute, so somehow, some way they can get the money back to the Ukrainian government? That's the idea. Yeah, I'm not familiar. I, wow. I don't know what the actual number of the legislation is, but that's been contemplated. So it's different than normal. Yeah. You know, what you would think of as normal, like DOJ or, or Treasury asset forfeiture. In some cases, it goes back to the victim. And I think in this case, they're kind of viewing the, the Ukrainian government as the victim and that money would go back. And I don't think that's passed yet, but that caught my eye when it came across. Regarding the money laundering if you can speak about it in general terms, what exactly is the money laundering crime with these oligarchs? I mean, for example, usually these guys are like, you know, they're in they're in steel, they're in chemicals, they're in various commodities type of businesses out there, maybe maybe wep- weapons manufacturing. What exactly are the crimes that they're committing that c- considers it money laundering? I mean, if they were just doing, if they were Joe the plumber and just had the and just had the plumbing business and ended up being a big plumbing business in Russia, that wouldn't be that much of an issue, I don't think. But what in particular are these guys doing that make it money laundering? I can't speak to it specifically, sure, because I think all of that 
information only within the confines of the U.S. government. But speaking broadly, right. the, the U.S. international money laundering statutes are extraterritorial, which means they don't just apply to people in the U.S. You don't even have to have ever stepped foot on U.S. soil. It is one of the most powerful statutes the U.S. government has at their disposal. A money laundering crime, it's one statute of the criminal code. But underneath that, the specified unlawful activities, there's 200 plus Mm -hmm. violations. So there's a cornucopia of criminal activity that you could be involved in. And again, when you're dealing with civil asset forfeiture, you don't need to prove it in front of a jury. You need to provide some evidence. So the bar is not as high as in a criminal case. So my guess is they've got an international money laundering theory where Essentially, it's over $10,000 has moved across U.S. lines, and they've got an underlying criminal activity, one of those 200 and likely one of the few that you mentioned. And that money has passed through the United States banking system, and that's the theory that they're using. And and that's me, in my opinion, based on just kind of what I've read and what I know from experience. U.S. international money laundering laws, kind of a fascinating topic to look at, just incredibly powerful. No doubt they're, they're really utilizing that in this endeavor. So let me just give it a hypothetical example. Let's assume that there's Indonesian natural resources that are being pillaged. They're getting a bunch of ivory and plants and animal parts and whatever else it is, and they sell it to China, and the money runs through, ultimately through the United States. In this theory, if the Russian oligarch is part of that whole scheme, even though the crime is in a different country altogether, but the money ran through the United States, this would qualify for the asset forfeiture or at least the the seizing of the asset. It could. Yeah, I'll I'll say it could. There's a lot of theoreticals in that example, but it doesn't take a whole lot. Number one, on the civil asset forfeiture, but on the money laundering, again, having so many specified unlawful activities and just the power of that statute. It's just broad and, and wide ranging. So yeah, I think that's that's not an out of the realm of possibility the theoretical that you put out there. During your career as an IRS special agent and currently in your position as director of investigations, what resources or training have helped you in your journey? I think a, a lot of it is just the people, the people that you meet. Those, to me, are the best resources. When I kind of reflect back on my almost 30 years, it's the it's the great people that I met that helped me and mentored me along in my career, as well as the ones that you work for an organization for so many years. You work with some incredible people, and you work with some people that when you work with them, you see things that you don't want to be, right? You see attributes of, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I, I see how people react to that. So I don't want to be like that person. And it's, to me, it's a series of picking up bits and pieces along the way in a 30-year career. You learn some things by mistake. You learn some great things by watching your peers and your mentors do things. And it's the series of experiences that you have with people, right? Not 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 remote like we have been the last two years, but actually working with people, seeing them in the field, seeing them interact with people, and kind of picking up the good and the bad. But to me, it's a it's really been the the, the people that I worked with over the years and the ones that have again helped and mentored me through my career. You've had the good supervisors and the bad supervisors, the good coworker, right. the bad, exactly and the bad right. coworker. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And there's something to be learned from each. Exactly. I learned what not to do. <laughs> what do you wish you had known when you started? Time flies. I wish, you know, you never think that when you're 20 something years old, that how fast your career is going to go. I think I took advantage of most of it along the way, but realizing now and, and as you get older and more mature and more experienced, you realize just how incredibly grateful I was to work for the U.S. government and to work for this organization that had an amazing mission and role overall in the United States government. I never thought about that probably the first 15 years of my career. And it's something that I think of quite a bit now, just how fortunate I was to have this this incredible job with the government. I would dare say that being an IRS special agent is the best job out there. It really, it really, yeah, you're, you're self-employed. I have, have zero regrets. Yeah, yeah, you really are self-employed, and as long as you keep your plate full, they'll let you work. And if you have a That's decent right. supervisor, oh, it's even better uh, because yeah. or SAC, they just let you do what you want to do, and and you put the numbers up, and they let you be. And if you, as long as you enjoy it, then there's a lot of opportunities out there to branch out into cyber and use of force and some undercover and other things out there to kind of spice things up and keep it where it's not mundane the whole time you're looking at spreadsheets. Couldn't agree with you more. It's a great career, but it was also good to leave too. I didn't want to be that grouchy old guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it ain't like it used to be. You know, don't be that don't right. want to be that person either. Uh, yeah, exactly. Looking back in your career, what was the biggest mistake or lost opportunity? Where'd you really screw up at? Or, or man, I, I yeah, should have done I that. I mean, I started as an agent, made it to the chief. So I not a lot that I think of in terms of mistakes, but it, there's definitely a couple of things that stick with me. And most of it have to do with like how I reacted to a situation. And the one that I think of the most, and I used to always talk to new special agents and new supervisors about is times when you apply for a job and you don't get it, or you apply for a, to work on a case or to get a detail or something like that, and things don't work out your way. And and I was no stranger to that. There were jobs that I didn't get. There were positions that I didn't get. A couple of them in particular, I just I just look back and cringe and just embarrassed for how I acted because you think you're the best for something and you don't get selected and just and it crushes your ego and and things like that. But then you realize I realize from my own experience in one particular job that sticks in my mind that I didn't get that after a couple of weeks, the only person that it was impacting was me. You know, I was miserable to be around. I didn't get the job and I just had to kind of shake myself off and try for the next one. What I took from that was that's what you have to do, right? You're a big boy or big girl. Sometimes things aren't going to go your way, shake it off and move on. And the number of people, unfortunately, that I saw in my career that um, thankfully, the minority. But if you continue down that road, you become one of those people that you just described, that the crotchety old man or woman in the field office that that is not is not pleasant to be around. Right. Um, so that to me, that's kind of like when I look back on it, that's one that I again, I kind of cringe and I'm embarrassed for how I acted. But hopefully I think I learned from it and tried to share that experience with others that came behind me. Yeah, sometimes there's 20 people vying for two seats, and there's just not enough yeah. people. Yeah, it just it just happens that way. And there's other times where you think you're the best qualified, you didn't get it, and you probably were the best qualified for some reason. You just weren't picked. It just yeah. except, I, 
I haven't been in those shoes to where I get to pick and choose. I didn't have any skin in the game when it comes to picking the next manager or the next sack. (laughs) Very good. You ready for the final four questions? Sure. Final four, Don. What is your biggest motivation now? You've gone all the way from a low-level agent to chief, and you are now the director of investigations for the firm. What's your biggest motivation now? As I thought about, as my career wound down, and I thought about what I, what if anything I wanted to do, the, the thought quickly occurred to me: I never really worked in private industry ever. When I was young, my older brother and I mowed grass. We lived in Pittsburgh, so I didn't. I never worked at a retail establishment. We just were out there humping and cutting grass and and making money that way. Went to college and started this job pretty much right out of college. You know, I like to think I had a successful career. In my mind, I was ready for the next challenge. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could be successful in private industry too. So that was part of it. I wanted to stay busy and mentally sharp. But I really wanted to try my hand at in private industry. And I'd worked with a lot of these folks before, but that was really a lot of the motivation. And then continuing to work with people that I really enjoyed working with over my career. How's it going so far? Are you liking it? The change? Yeah, I enjoy it. I am enjoying it. It's a, and like I said, I I'm fortunate to be able to work a, a really diverse inventory of cases, civil and criminal and internal investigations. Still get to do a lot of speaking and consulting and civil litigation. So so much like the work that we did with IRSCI, every day is a new thing, right? I'm not doing the same thing every single day. So that variety and a little bit of travel here and there, it's uh, so far enjoying it. Do you find the constraints are a lot less because you don't worry about disclosure issues and that type of thing? Yeah, but it's different. You think that constraints of the government, certainly on the disclosure and things like that. My firm is relatively small and things that you take for granted with the government, like the computers and the IT support and the network and travel vouchers and everything being computerized, that actually that bureaucracy exists no matter where you go. Mm-hmm. Unless you're like you and go work for yourself. And the only person that you can complain to is yourself. So <laughs> <laughs> and if it doesn't get done, guess who's the fault? I am. Exactly. You're the <laughs> IT manager. Yeah. I'm the IT guy and the chief bottle washer and the guy who washes the <laughs> right. truck. No problem. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? I, I always get stuck on the book that I just read or that I'm reading. There's a fascinating book that I just finished reading that I highly recommend. It's called Empire of Pain. Have you heard of it? No. It's about the opioid crisis and specifically about the Purdue Pharma and Sackler family. But it's fascinating. When I was the assistant special agent charge in Washington, D.C. in 2009 and 10, it may have been a little bit earlier than that, but there was a case out of the the Western District of Virginia against Purdue Pharma having to do with the opioid crisis. And there was an IRS special agent involved in that case. But it gives fascinating insight into a couple of things. Number one is OxyContin and how it became this massive killer that it became. And it talks about the FDA approval, but it also talks about the investigations along the way in efforts to thwart the the federal criminal investigations. As a result, you have this Purdue Pharma was a family-held company literally making billions and billions of dollars kind of trying to stay behind the scenes but it was a 
fascinating book. The other one that's always a good read, sometimes I never veer far from the work that we do. American Kingpin is another good book that's mm-hmm. uh, about the Silk Road case and kind of highlights what the agencies did and what IRSCI did to kind of crack that case open. But those are a couple that kind of stick in my mind. I had a chance to uh, read the second book about IRSCI's involvement, and that was very interesting. I had the questions, knowing from the inside, all right, you just don't get a database off of Best Buy's shelf and turn this into a Silk Road. Somebody's got to create this thing from scratch. How did that, you know, who's right. doing the work? How's it happening? Those are the type of questions I had to really generate this service or product, whatever you want to call it. And uh, one of the contractors I was working with at the uh, cybercrime unit said, well, you got to read this book. I, like, I didn't think about it. It's like, okay. So I read the book. I'm like, oh, makes more sense now. Makes a lot more sense about yeah. how yeah. how it all started and and Gary Alfred's and just reaching back to the very beginning to find somebody. Because something else too, how do you market this thing? I mean, who do you go to to figure out how to buy this stuff? And Gary went all the way back and then found the initial mm-hmm. really advertisement or marketing that this guy was doing. Pretty interesting. Very interesting. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100 now, that you enjoyed and made your job easier. If it's good enough for Don Fort, it's good enough for the world, what would that be? Man, of all the questions you've asked me, that one's probably the hardest. I uh, racked my brain for that one. The one that I came up with, an iced coffee maker. As silly as that sounds. No, no. Uh, hey, listen. Some people love their it, coffee. It's, it's like a second religion. Yeah, it, it's. I love my coffee. Uh, I love my hot coffee. But man, when it's you're in a DC or southwestern Virginia swampy summer, there's nothing like a good, nothing like a good iced coffee. And that's you know something I, I that definitely I purchased. It was way under hundred dollars that I just enjoy on a good summer afternoon. What brand is it? Uh, shoot, I don't know. You got to ask me that. I got it on Amazon. Could be any. Well, I was just <laughs> curious brand. if you had a certain brand that you <laughs> yeah. like going, you know what? No. It's a, it's a blank, yeah. blank, blank <laughs> iced coffee. You got to have it. I mean, one of those type of yeah. things. I'll, I'll no, put a link to it for people. I don't remember what the brand was. Oh, okay. All right. An iced coffee maker. That's good stuff. If you had to do something now, Don, if you got fired today from your firm, they said, nope, can't do this. Sorry, you lost your CPA license. What would you be doing? My dream would be to be on, I'm a golfer, so to be on the senior PGA tour, but too terrible to do that. So I'd probably just enjoy some time out with friends playing golf. It's a great way. Uh, it's a great way to spend four hours with a friend catching up. I know I play with my dad quite a bit. And when I haven't seen him for a while, I always enjoy that four hours of time in a cart playing golf. So that would be I, I couldn't do it every day, but it's definitely something I enjoy and would, would take advantage, take more advantage of. I started my golf career at Fletzy because you had spare time, right? So I took a, I took a class yeah. or two and didn't do anything with it, of course, and didn't pick up a golf club really until I retired from IRSCI last year and was just starting to do golf just to get out there and and then mm-hmm. mingle and do something different. It's, you know, I've always wanted to learn how to do it. So, uh, but yes, I completely understand. All right, Don. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate your uh, your input on the Russians. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. And thank you uh, so much for your service to your country. Good luck to you. Yeah, thanks again, Robert. I appreciate it. 